The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop pulling your python and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 203 with guests Bill Wagner and Diane Marsh, recorded live Thursday, November 16th, 2006. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter, and now offering a whole suite of on-site and remote classes in .NET 2.0 technologies, online at www.franklins.net, and by Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications, online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who can't tell his turbo gears from his Django, Carl Franklin. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jeff. Welcome back, Richard Campbell. We're here. Uh, first show that we've recorded since being in Barcelona. It was an amazing amount of fun, wasn't it? It was. Uh, what a great city. I can't believe I never made it to Spain before. I had such a good time. Our wives came. They had a good time. Uh, we got a lot of uh, interviews with people on the floor, too, which we'll be uh, publishing next week. Isn't that right? Yes, you're right. And, of course, the, the interview that left us both speechless was Arfa. Yeah, Arfa. She was uh, an 11-year-old Pakistani uh, girl who is a certified C-sharp uh, professional. And she's now passed her ASP.NET exam as well. So she's well on her way to certified developer. Yeah, she knocked everybody out. She was at the uh, keynote speech, too. And- and Shuttle just so amazingly articulate. Yeah. I don't think she can be a developer. You can't be that articulate and be a developer. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> she will be wasted on development sitting in a cube somewhere. Yeah. No, I, I don't think that girl's destined for a cube. Our winner, Johan. He, oh, uh, right. Johan Sundstrom. He had the time of his life, let me tell you. We, we, he was really a lot of fun, too. And we, of course, traveled with us. Uh, he he uh, sat in on a few different things that we did and out to dinner. And uh, it was a lot of fun. He went on the tourist bus with my wife and I one day around Barcelona. He had a great time. Um, also, uh, just a big word of thanks for everybody who participated in the sweepstakes. And uh, you're all winners in our eyes. And <laughs> Yeah, uh, of course, we, number, we did meet a number of the other winners as well that uh, were at Barcelona and uh, had their swag and, had a, and were having a good time. And uh, we're going to have to do something like that again, I think. That was a fun sweepstakes. And speaking of swag, let's read some email and give away some swag. You bet. Uh, I got one here. Kind of an interesting one. This is from Andy Anderson. And he's got a DNR TV suggestion. He says, I would like to see you also provide an audio MP3 file associated with each DNR TV episode that I can listen to without having to watch it. Yes, I know the purpose is to view it, but I want to listen to it as well. Then if I find the content interesting, I can go back and view it. But there's a lot of audio gems in DNR TV that are now hidden from us who want to listen to it. And, you know, he was the first guy who actually made that argument that, uh, you know, for this is the reason why. And was, uh, I know we've had this question a few times. Could I have an audio times. version of DNR TV? I always thought it was a gag. Well, yeah, I never, to took crazy. It, I never took it seriously because it is so visual and things. But, you know, for wanting to preview it, I can understand that. 
Uh, so yeah, we're we're giving that second thought, and is, if we can fit it into the the programming and the scheduling, we'll we'll certainly do that. I think. Uh, I have a, a a nice email from Mark Friedman, who also left this as a comment on the blog. He says, uh, over the years, you've had a lot of great shows, and there are several standouts that I consider favorites and recommend to even non-.NET Rocks listeners, but you outdid yourselves with this episode, which was last week's uh, panel discussion. It just may be my favorite yet. This was an outstanding show with a tremendous panel, a great topic, and timely since my company has been trying to become more agile, with top-notch questions from the audience and absolutely smooth panel participation with wonderful stories to illustrate every discussion. Did I use enough stellar adjectives? <laughs> it's a tribute to the professionalism of the participants from the members of the panel through to the production team. I picked up a heck of a lot of real-life tips from the qualified people who have been in the trenches, have felt the pain, and have benefited from the trials of implementing Agile solutions. You seriously have set the bar high for other panel format podcasts, and although you'll be hard-pressed to reach this level of quality often in the future, you should use this episode as a model for what I hope are many more such discussions. Great job done by all. And I should take this opportunity to thank you for .NET Rocks. It's made a major impact on my career and reignited my enthusiasm for the field. I took Carl's master class back in June of 2004, which was also great. And I'll be in New London for the Wikifa class in the Windows Communication Foundation in May. I look forward to many more years of .NET Rocks. Sincerely, Mark Friedman. Mark, uh, wow, what can we say? We're speechless. That that's that's a pretty nice email. Thanks a lot. And I hope we can deliver that kind of quality every week. We talked about this on the way out the door after recording it. That was easily the best panel I've ever been involved in. Yeah, it was very, very good. I mean, everybody got along really well. It had a really nice rhythm to it. Sometimes you get lucky. I think we just got the right mix of personalities that time around. And Richard, I should note, not one tomato from the audience not yeah, one not even a not even well you know european audiences they're not into hurling fruit so much yeah uh also mark mentioned some classes and uh, i haven't been mentioning the classes that are going on at franklins.net lately and i think i should uh just because we're doing so many great things i don't want it to seem like we've forgotten about our great training classes miguel castro is teaching the aspnet 2.0 master class in vb uh, coming up Monday, January 22nd, Monday through Friday. Uh, and he's also doing that April 2nd, 2007. Joel Semeniuk is doing just-in-time team system, wow. which is five-day hands-on to get you up to speed with it. You absolutely need to know about team system before you need to use it just in time for your next project. Uh, two classes on the books, again, five days, February 12th and May 7th. This is obviously next year. Uh, ASB.NET 2.0 Masterclass in C-Sharp, Miguel Castro again. That's February 19th and April 30th. We also have Mark Dunn's awesome BizTalk 2006 Boot Camp. It's gotten serious accolades from everybody who's uh, attended it. Mark Dunn and Mark Barry are the instructors there. That's going to be February 26th, June 4th, and August 6th. And uh, the VBNet Masterclass again. Now, the next one is March 12th, and then Michelle's, uh, Michelle Robustamonte's iDesign uh, WCF Masterclass is going to be Monday, May 21st. So we have a lot of classes going on next year. Check them out at franklins.net. And we do train developers to work smarter. All right, that's enough of that. Let's get on to the real meat of this show, which is our great guests. Uh, I'm talking about today Bill Wagner and Diane Marsh. Bill Wagner is the co-founder of SRT Solutions, and he's developed commercial software for the past 20 years, leading the design on many successful engineering and enterprise Microsoft Windows products. He now spends his time facilitating .NET adoption in clients' product and enterprise development. Bill's principal strengths include the C-Sharp language, the core framework, smart clients, and SOA, service-oriented architecture and design. Diane Marsh, co-founder of SRT Solutions, helps clients stay at technology's forefront. Her nearly 20 years of diverse commercial experience include applications from manufacturing to genomics, decision support to real-time processing on Windows and Unix operating systems. Welcome, guys. Hey, Carl. Hey, Richard. Hi, guys. 
We're glad to have you with us. So we have both founders of SRT Solution, or are there more? Uh, there's just the two of us. Uh, okay. So um, before you know, before we start talking about uh, the stuff that's inside your brain currently and on the edge of your tongue, let's talk about this uh, this event that you're having that you emailed us about a little while ago. This is not a code camp, but it's a similar thing, right? Tell us about it. Right. Um, I'll talk about that a little bit because I'm on the organizing committee. Um, the event is called Code Mash, and it is a um, developer conference, and it's going to be held in Sandusky, Ohio, January 18th and 19th, 2007. The idea is to bring together developers of all flavors, Java developers, .NET developers, Python, Ruby, Turbo Gears, everybody, and um, all learn from one another. Um, the basic premise is that there are advancements in each one of these areas going on, and by learning what those are, all of our own development processes and applications and um, learning can improve and benefit. Yeah, there's a lot more than .NET going on here, and this is really the, the, the most diverse uh, you know, conference that has been pitched to .NET developers that I've seen in a long time. Now, and it's not just a conference. What, are, what, are the, uh, what exactly is going to happen here? Well, the, this conference is being held at the Kalahari Resort, which is an indoor water park in Ohio. We figure if we're going to bring people into Ohio in the middle of winter, um, we ought to at least make it a uh, resort-like experience. And so the idea is come, bring your families if you want, have a great time, hang out at the water park. Um, there are going to be a lot of interesting things going on in addition to these talks. We're going to have some really top-notch keynotes. We have Bruce Eckel giving a keynote. Uh, we have Neil Ford from ThoughtWorks giving a keynote, and we have Scott Guthrie giving a keynote as well. What's the cost? And did I hear you say it's in an indoor water park? It's an indoor water park. What's up with that? I can't imagine an outdoor water park in Ohio in January. That would be bad. Well, uh, That would be really bad. The, the, this is really cool. Um, when the organizing committee went down to look at it, they took some really cool pictures, including an indoor surfing section. So inside this water park, there's, you know, lazy river and um, big slides to go down. And there's even this little section where this water uh, waves up and you can surf down the water. And my husband's first reaction was, can adults do that? Now, <laughs> are you going to allow us any time to go do that? Is there going to, is there going to be like a swim between sessions kind of thing? How are you going to schedule it? Well, the idea is that, um, you know, obviously people skip out of sessions when they don't find anything going on, but um, we're hoping that the sessions are so engaging that people won't do that. And, in fact, there's time in the evenings when um, a lot of stuff's going to be going on in, um, in terms of the water park. And, as well, I'm going to be staying through the weekend um, with my family, and we're going to hang out and do it then. Plus, the way that our, our – um, you had asked about the cost, and the cost is very minimal, $99 for the wow. early bird registration. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. So $99 if you register before the end of the month, so November 30th, if you stay at the resort. And the resort's giving us incredible pricing, um, $88 a night, which includes four water park tickets. Wow. And so that's wow. A, yeah. And, of course, the show is 18th and 19th, which is a Thursday, Friday. So naturally, just stay through the weekend and have some fun. Yeah, and I so, get it. But people with a lot, well, probably a lot of people will do is come on Wednesday night to be there for the morning sessions on Thursday, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to go down on Wednesday and have some time at the water park before everything starts, and then um, do all of the sessions on Thursday, and then afterward go and do what we can do with the water park, and then Friday, you know, and then we're going to stay through the weekend as well. So this is the theme of the conference, and it's also the theme of this show that you wanted to talk about learning from other people's experiences on other platforms and sort of comparing notes. Um, I got to tell you, my brother's a Java programmer, and uh, he actually got into the business, um, started by taking a VB class. And once he did that, he went to work, and he didn't even work on VB. They put him on mumps. <laughs> and so, yeah, so he got, became an expert at mumps like in a couple of months and then learned, you know, JavaScript and HTML and PL SQL and, and Perl and, and just all these different languages. Uh, hasn't made the jump to .NET in, in his company, 
But, you know, he's uh, done some editing of DNR TV. He does that now. And, of course, we're always comparing notes about, you know, uh, vocabulary even. Just, you know, what's a property? I have a getter and a setter. You have a property. You know, I say tomato, you say tomato. But it's never like, you know, my platform is better than your platform. We're all, it's, it's a really interesting conversation when you have people who have this information uh, that, you know, it's the same stuff we're doing just with different syntax. You find that to be the case? You know, to some extent, it's true. Um, in a big way, there's uh, there were kind of specific problems that different languages were um, invented for, and there's kind of a sweet spot there. You know, things like C started as a a systems level programming language, and then kind of grew from that. You know, and C plus plus was an object oriented systems level programming language. Um, you know, Java even started with embedded systems. So it has some of that heritage. That's why the whole garbage collected environment started there. Mm. Um, so there's there's a different sweet spot for different things that they're very good at. But then all the languages and all the environments are trying to do all kinds of different stuff. So then it's it's interesting to look at the different ways to solve a problem with a different language and turn your head around in in different ways, and you can see new ways of using you know the tools you're used to. But I think that you're right in terms of at least Java and, and C Sharp, for example, there are so many similarities there that a lot of the um, differences in, in what we use as our vocabulary. And so, you know, a lot of times I'll be stuck on something and I'll call Bill and, and sort of um, brainstorm with him about something and he'll say, well, in .NET we do it like this. And then we'll sort of go off from there. I'll say, oh, yeah, that's probably what I need to do. Even though, you know, we're not talking about the same libraries or the same way of actually implementing it, we're talking about the same type of an approach a lot of times. I mean, this is where we get more into the ideas of architecture, which is really platform and, and, and uh, language agnostic. There are right ways and effective ways to build software, and many of these things are more in common with each other than we might think. It's just really, like I say, a language or a, a, a glossary issue. You both started, um, well, I don't know if you started, but you both went from C++ to Java, and then, Bill, you've moved into uh, C Sharp after that. What, uh, why was that? What, what made you switch to Java? Well, let's see. Um a lot of that was the kinds of things that we were building. C++ had gotten almost too big. I mean, they throw, you know, once you added things like, you know, the STL, which is now part of the standard library, and doing some of the applications like some web-based applications that are running, you know, for probably weeks without stopping. Um, you know, garbage collection became a real big enticement to move, right? You know, you're leaking memory at Say the rate of you know ten bytes an hour. Well, that's going to add up on a you know on a web server that's running you know for a week. Um, hey, I just got to interrupt you because you mentioned this before that garbage collection started with Java. In fact, we had this in Basic. We had garbage collection in Quick Basic, and it was really all about string space. It wasn't for you know other other types of variables because it was very string intensive. But there was a really there was a garbage collector in Quick Basic and then in Visual Basic as well for strings. Interesting. I, now, I actually have not done a lot with Basic, so I did not know that. Well, that's why I'm here, man. Well, thank you. <laughs> Good for you. But you, I mean, I think about back then building Windows applications in C was hard work. But but even then, it was it was easier than it was in C, right? If you go True. back to you know the SDK. Um, one of my favorite quotes from Charles Petzold when he gave a talk here, he said, you know, somebody asked him how he got started in Windows uh, programming. He said it was a PC magazine and, you know, the Microsoft uh, representative handed him, you know, the 12 floppy disks with, uh, you know, Windows 1.0 SDK. And he says, six months later, I had Hello World and a, an article. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it was hard, right? And, it was hard. Know, MFC and, and ATL made that easier. You know, Java, working in other environments, made that easier. .NET has made that easier again. You know, we've all got bigger tools that we're using, um, solving harder problems. How about you, Diane? What made you make the jump to Java? To Java from C++? Yeah. Well, you know, in part, there was a lot of client requests to start doing Java development. 
And so I, I sort of heard the rumblings in the in the world where people were saying, well, you know, what's this whole thing about Java? And so I thought, well, I better figure out what this is. And I, you know, I'm really a, a language zealot. I really like to learn about languages. Yeah. And so um, I was really intrigued by what Java might be able to offer. And um, so, you know, at first, even before we had client requests to do Java, I was interested in the language, and so I started investigating it and trying to figure out what it was all about, what it was good for, and, um, you know, did I have any reason to use it? And so, really, my interest in languages is probably what drove my interest in Java. And you're still camped out in the primarily in the Java land? Well, right now, I'm, I'm uh, playing with Python a lot, actually. Huh. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm enjoying that. Even more, maybe, in some ways. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Developer Express. Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. Do you find that there are, um, you're having to do work for clients where they have a mixed environment? Do you, do, do you mixed, need um, .NET, Java? Or mixed anything, Java, Python, Python.net, you know. Often um, we don't see a mix of, um, of Java and .NET. Just because um, they're too fundamental to mix. Yeah, for the most part, people see them as um, solving the same problem, right? And so they usually pick one, get good at it, and and stick with it. And um, and that that's a reasonable answer to that, I think. Um, on the other hand, we do have a, a client that we're working with right now, and they do have um, they do have applications in both areas of Java and .NET. Actually, we have a couple of those, don't we, Bill? Yeah, there's a few different ones, and and a lot of those are large companies where you know different departments have standardized on different things, um, or one was driven underground and, and, you know, they're secretly doing, you know, the project using the technology they're not supposed to, right? Yeah, yeah. or so one was subsumed, you know, so there was a, a buyout of a, another company, and that company came along with some assets that included, you know, the other camp. What are, obviously, there must be a lot of interop going on, though, with your clients, Yes. No, typically not. What we find is that these people that we just described that have both Java and .NET um, solutions in, in their same company, typically they're for very different applications, and they're not interoperating. We, we actually thought there was going to be a lot of interest in interop, and part of the initial reason for both of us staying focused on our individual languages and preferences was to be able to take advantage of that where our clients to need that. But, you know, we really haven't seen that need. Um, so there's mm. a lot of hubbub about interop, but in practice, we really haven't seen it. And I see interop, and, you know, there's other kinds of interop too. It's one thing to have these two frameworks calling each other at an object level. And of course, my immediate thought is, why would you want to load both frameworks? I see more interop at the database level. This application writes that database, and the other application writes the database as well. Or at the service level was right. what I what I was thinking of. Or, or but, well, and at the service level, it'll come in between companies, right? I mean, you know, how many managers do you think sit there and go, you know, I'd really like to use you know three or four different technology toolkits and train everybody in three or four different technologies? You know, you know, they want to pick one, standardize, and and feel good about that decision. But companies work with other companies. So right. one company, if I'm going to send you data, you know, I have to interop with the program you're working in, which might be in a different language and on a different framework. That's right. So it behooves you to do your, little, do your homework before you make that call to the Java programmer who doesn't know anything about .NET. Right, right. right. And say, okay, how do we converse now? <laughs> yeah. Uh, where does Python fit in all this? Is anybody using Python in the real world? For anything real? Yeah, actually, a lot of people are using Python for a lot of really um, cool things. That's probably a very naive question on my part, but I have absolutely no experience with Python. So tell me, tell me what's, you know, what it's being used for. Um, well, I can tell you what I'm using it for right now, um, which 
is, you know, my own personal perspective. I'm using it within a, a web framework called Turbo Gears. Um, Turbo Gears is written in is written in Python and it runs on a Python platform mm-hmm. for rapid web application development. Um, so this is, sounds very Ruby on Rails ish. Yes, it's it's a uh, it's sort of the Python um, analog to Ruby on Rails. Okay. Hmm. And so um, I'm working in that right now because I had to choose a, a client came to me and said, do you want to do this project? And I said, sure. And he said, why don't you do it in Ruby? And I said, well, you know, I've had some exposure to Turbo Gears. I haven't really had any exposure to Ruby. If you want me to do it in Ruby, I will. But I think I can be more productive in Turbo Gears. And um, he said, well, sure, let's give it a shot. So, um, you know, that that's been pretty fun. And I've learned a lot about Python. I've learned a lot about web frameworks. And um, so that, you know, that's kind of what's been driving my, um, you know, driving my adoption of Python. If you uh, write in C Sharp or Java, what's going to be your experience of Python in terms of the language? Is it is it fairly easy to understand? Is it cryptic? Is it closer to Perl? What is, what's it like? It's way easier than um, any of the languages you just described. Really? It's got a really simple syntax. Um, the first thing that's going to jump out at you is, okay, everybody hold your hats. The white space is significant. Ouch. Ooh. And and I think that's the first thing that hits everybody. It's like, oh, no, I have to worry about how, you know, indenting and that's significant. Why would they do that? But honestly, I have to say, I had that same reaction at first. And once I started using it, um, I realized that it really isn't an issue. It's hard to get past in the beginning. Spoken like a true language zealot. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, you know, the, the deal is that, you know, if you're writing nicely formatted code, um, you are better able to see things. The, the, the structure of the code sort of pops out at you. And so, you know, the fact that your if statements and your else statements are indented nicely um, helps you to read your code faster. And it helps you to catch those bugs that a little glitch with a, with a um, curly brace is going to be a lot harder to see. Because your brain, as, a, as another Python programmer told me, your brain doesn't see curly braces. Your brain sees white space. Wouldn't you rather have, like, IntelliSense and a background compiler, though? <laughs> no bias. Know. No bias there. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I really think that um, this is helping me um, see, you know, see the structure of my code mm. at a glance. Well, and it's an interesting point that because the structure of the code is part of the syntax, it's consistent throughout everybody's code. Exactly. That's true, too. Oh, I don't know. You guys sound like you're trying to put lipstick on the pit bull to me for well, some reason. Well, <laughs> Bill, am I smoking crack? Are you, what, what do you think of this? You know, I when I look at it, when I first looked at it, I had the same reaction. You know, what is what is this? But then the more you read it, she's right. You When you read code, you read it with the formatting that's there. And, you know, it's no different than the IntelliSense... You know, in, in Visual Studio, you hit enter and your code moves around because this mm. is the way the editor says it's supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. The only difference is this is the way the compiler says this is what you meant, right? Um, so, can you be expressive with the white space? I mean, does it? You say there's a rule, but is it actually used to express code? Um, the the levels um, express the the blocks. So you know if. The, the I see. line lines up with the line above it. It's in the same block. Ah. And if there's indentation, it has to line. It has to match the indentation above that. I see. So okay. You know what I mean. So it is. It's it is useful. Yeah. It's, it's not just a, an arbitrary rule. And the good thing that the that from my perspective, from a, a Java programmer and a C plus plus programmer perspective, is that semicolons are ignored because the most. Um, you don't have to put semicolons at the end of your Python code, at the end of the lines of your Python code, but if you do, it ignores them, and that's a very good thing because I have a really hard time not putting those semicolons in there. Yeah. And I'll look back at my code later and clean it up because I don't need them. Um, but, you know, it, that that would have been much more of a hassle to me um, to sure. try to remove all of those semicolons. So I'm really glad that they're le- letting me leave those in. So where did Turbo Gears come from? Turbo Gears came from Ann Arbor, um, which is where both Bill and I hail from here. Wow. So, um, and the the odd thing is that I actually found out about 
Turbo Gears when I was out at a uh, programming the new web conference in Crested Butte, Colorado with Bruce Eckel. And um, we were talking about a lot of different options for web frameworks, and somebody brought up Turbo Gears and Ruby on Rails and uh, Django and, you know, other options. And um, when I got back to Ann Arbor, I, I started looking around at all these different things, and I said, wait a minute, Turbo Gears is being developed here in Ann Arbor. And um, what Kevin Dangor, the creative Turbo Gears, did was instead of building a uh, monolithic uh, system for, for building a framework, what he did was he went out into the Python community and grabbed the best-of-breed tools. So he grabbed uh, Cherry Pie, which is a web server, and he grabbed MochiKit, which is a, a library for making uh, JavaScript suck less, in the uh, words of the creator. It's <laughs> a uh, technical and, term. Yeah. And he gra- and he grabbed. Um, let's see what else did he grab? Uh, a kid, which is a templating language, and put those things together into um, Turbo Gears. And he ma- and he grabbed an object relational mapper, a SQL object as well. And the idea is that as these, uh, as the Python community uh, grows, he can replace these tools that are inside of Turbo Gears and not affect uh, the Turbo Gears applications that are currently in uh, out in the field. And so one change that's going to come in a future release of Turbo Gears will be that SQL Alchemy will become the object relational mapper because it offers some cool features that um, SQL object doesn't in terms of being able to manipulate the database. And, and that will be something that you get as a Turbo Gears developer. So I'm looking at the Turbo Gears org website here and uh, it just the first blurb says create a database driven ready to extend application in minutes all with designer friendly templates easy ajax on the browser side and on the server side not a single sql query in sight with code that is as natural as writing a function they've got some videos and they also i saw this nice uh, link to accolade which is a an sat prep application uh, and that is that was written using Turbo Gears that I guess they're getting some traction with. Yeah, it's interesting, and it's free apparently, right? Yeah, it is. And uh, a book just came out this week: um, Rapid Web Application Programming with Turbo Gears, uh, written by Mark Ram, also in Ann Arbor. And um, so, you know, the documentation is coming along, and uh, we are actually SRT, our company, is co-sponsoring some Turbo Gears training here in Ann Arbor in the beginning of January. Um, January 14th to 16th, we're going to have a Turbo Gears jam. Cool. And Bruce Eccles is going to come in and and be the uh, uh, moderator and leader for that. Um, the reason why he's going to do it is because we've we did a web frameworks jam out in Crested Butte um, later in the year that inc- one of the groups chose Turbo Gears, and I was in that group, and Bruce was in that group, and um, so was Barry Hawkins, and we did some fun stuff with Turbo Gears in the week that we were out there. And uh, another group worked on Spring, and another group worked on uh, on the Google Web Toolkit, and so we had a nice opportunity to compare our experiences with those toolkits. But um, the Turbo Gears group had so much fun that we decided we wanted to do a, a jam based just on Turbo Gears. Huh. And you brought up uh, another one in passing, Django. Is that like Django Reinhardt, D-J-A-N-G-O? Yep, yep. It's a, that's also a Python-based um, web framework. And is this something you're also using? or? I haven't used it. Um, I know one of the other guys that um, has been that I know that's working on Turbo Gears was going to reimplement his application using Django to compare it and see what he thought about both. Interesting. And of course, Ruby on Rails uh, comes to mind when I see Turbo Gears. You say this is the sort of the Python analog of Ruby on Rails. Have you looked at Ruby as a language at all, um, or? No, I haven't. I haven't had an opportunity to look at Ruby as a language at all. Um, Ruby on Rails is interesting. Um, my understanding—I'm not a Ruby expert—but my understanding from what I have heard is that um, you create the database using a specific sort of um, practices, naming things by convention, and then Ruby uh, Ruby on Rails detects things about your database and helps you to build this application. And so it's very convention-based, whereas Turbo Gears is, very, um, is much more free in that way. Bill, are you, um, are you using Python now? 
Uh, I, you know, I've actually started to look at it, and I'm more and more interested in it. Um, there's a, a couple different bloggers that have written some things comparing um, Python, the language, to the things you can do in C Sharp 3.0 and VB9, you know, the uh, link extensions. Yeah. And it's rather interesting. Um, you know, so far they've hit just some of the um, simple, might not be the right words, but the the introductory samples, um, you know, that we saw at PDC and that... Um, Anders did at TechEd Europe, and those things are are very natural in Python. Uh, I think as you dive deeper, the uh, link framework gives you some more interesting things that I'm not sure Python can do, but I don't know yet because I haven't played with Python enough, and I certainly want to. Um, Of course, isn't there a flavor of Python 4.net? Yes. Well, there's two. Uh, There's Iron Python and C Python, and the differences is that it, in general, you know, there's a few others, but at a very high level, the difference is C Python is meant to be exactly like Python. Iron Python is the Python language adapted for the .NET framework. So, for and instance, it runs Iron, in Visual Studio, right? Well, both do. Okay. But for instance, Iron Python makes use of the CLR's garbage collection, which is you know the mark and compact algorithm huh. and all that kind of stuff. C Python, getting closer to the Python standard, uses a reference counting algorithm. Hmm. Because that's what the Python language uses. Chris right. Sells would Which like sort that. of the from a from a Windows perspective or Windows development perspective is the old way. Right. I don't know if Chris Sells would like it because it's still not deterministic destruction. Oh, okay. But it's reference counting like com. Well, he wanted he's he's been on a quest to get reference counting back in uh, .NET as an option, but I don't know. That's another show, I think. <laughs> I think so. I I don't know that I'd agree with him on that, but. So is Python a dynamic language like Ruby? Yes, that it is. Okay, so you can modify objects on the fly and that kind of thing? Add methods and this kind of stuff? Diane? I don't know. I haven't I haven't delved into it like that. Um, my recollection is that you can. It's interesting, huh? That uh, these dynamic languages sort of, you know, crept up on us as a .NET developer. Yeah, um, and there's some interesting things. You know, this gets to one of the things that I really like in, you know, the, the Orcus release of both VB and C Sharp. Yeah. As as they move toward functional programming, it's you can add code, you know, in a different way, but you're kind of adding code to the to the mix as you're going. Yes. Very interesting stuff. It is. It is. You know, and as far as I'm concerned, though, the jury is still out. I mean, I haven't been a hundred percent convinced. I've seen Ruby. I've looked at it, and uh, you know, and 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 a lot of people are asking for these dynamic things, but you know, there's a little warning bell in the back of my head about getting about losing control of code, and uh, I guess you know we've talked about this issue on the show several times, but I guess it makes testing all that more important. Functional tests, uh, not functional tests, unit tests, unit testing, and functional tests. and functional tests. And, and, yeah, and this is to me is interesting where I like seeing what um, the .NET designers are doing with um, the Orcus release in that it's not really dynamic, but it's inferred typing. Let's so talk about like, that for a second then. Okay. So like in, in C sharp, I can say something like var I equals five. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now I isn't untyped or dynamically typed. I is an int because the compiler figures out five is an int. So therefore this variable is an int. Yeah. Now five lines later, I can't say I equals ABC. Yeah. Because that would change its type. Well, that would be perfectly legal in Python or in, in a dynamic language. Hmm. But okay. Yeah, you can definitely do that in Python. Right, right. And whereas in, in both C Sharp and VB9, they're going to be saying, well, the first time you assigned a value to this thing, it looked like, you know, an I queryable of strings. So therefore, if you reassign it, it has to be an I queryable of strings. It can't be something else. Okay, so they're inferring the type. They're not getting rid of the typing, um, which I think is an interesting mix because there are, you know, the, the the old C++ rule in terms of really trying to use strong typing everywhere is, yeah. you know, you can't ship code that doesn't compile. But right. it is certainly possible, you know, to not have 100% coverage on your tests and, and stuff gets out there. Um, Bill, you're all about discovering reusable components. What does that mean? Okay. Um, what what we're talking about there is is when I'm working with customers and we're building things, 
you know, you've got some set of people that want to design and architect this and, and just design everything right up front and draw things that we're going to reuse stuff. And then they'll start trying to build, you know, a massive framework of stuff mm. we want to reuse. Yeah. And I tend to have a, a, a lot of trouble trying to work with that because you never get anywhere. Right, you're constantly drawing things on the whiteboard. You're going, well, if I modify this a little bit more and add a couple more features to it, I can reuse it in more places. Hmm. Whereas, what seems to work a lot better with all the groups that I've worked with is, you know, build what you need. You know, start finding stuff and go. You know, if I take you know this set of stuff I built last week and modify it a little bit, now I can use it over here too. Yeah, so, it's yeah. Yeah, you I see. Build what, what you understand. need and start pulling things out and building little components that you can reuse. You know, once you discover, I want that, you know, rather than trying to at the beginning of a project or trying to or, predict the future. Yeah, yeah this you, sounds more like be wrong. You, you do your reuse at the end, not at the beginning. That's an agile philosophy, isn't it, Richard? Yeah, I, well, definitely agile focuses on build what you need, don't build more. Uh, and Agile really doesn't get into this, you know, worry about code reuse up later, front, per yes. se. They, they Obviously, you know, there is a philosophy that says, if it already exists, you should use it. But it actually reminds me much more of the of the game software development industry, which is really good at the sort of post-development, okay, the game is shipped, what can we get from this? In fact, many game uh, development shops have teams whose jobs are to go in and look at finished games and say, what can we pull out of this that somebody else might use later? And they may well build a new interface around those pieces so that they're easier to reuse later on. But it's definitely a post-facto task after the app is finished, then worry about it. Oh, definitely. And and part of that comes from the game business model, right? Where you get an advance to build this game, and then you're going to start getting royalties once you've shipped it, and you pump the royalties into the next game. Right. Yeah. Can you tell Bill did some game development? Yes. <laughs> and so, no wonder we get along so well. What, yeah. did, what did you work on, Bill? Uh, well, this goes way back. Um, in 1995, I was working for a company in Ann Arbor called uh, Media Station as a uh, consultant. And we built the Lion King animated storybook for Disney. No kidding. Cool. Yeah, yeah which was great fun. I, and, think, uh, I think I have that. You may. Your kids are about the right age for it. Not my yeah. kids, me. Oh, you. Okay. <laughs> Carl, you're making me look real old now. But um, the, the, there's two funny stories behind that. Uh, one was the way the company got started, they were building multimedia authoring tools for the next operating system. Okay? Hmm. Right. And their investors pretty much said, guys, you know, this, this is really cool. Dead product. But even if you sell it to all three people that own <laughs> Next Step machines, you won't make enough money. So Which is too out. bad, because that machine rocked. It was. It was really cool. Yeah, but it was very much an academics machine. I mean, it was yeah. in the universities and things. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. It never yeah. made it in the real world. Right. I'd like to mention that uh, this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik, Telerik RAD Controls. The most comprehensive suite of components for Windows Forms and ASP.NET applications. And you can find them online at www.telerik.com. So then they said, all right, switch gears. We're going to do games for things and, and, and whatnot. And through some a series of meetings, some of which on a plane and everything else, we got the contract to do the animated storybook for The Lion King. And well, the thing that's very interesting about that project is it, it opens your eyes to what real deadlines mean. Oh, yeah. Because yes. you know, with everything else, you know, if, if this product or that product slips a week or two weeks, but it's got better quality, that's good, you know, and the right decision. But if you miss a game and you can't have it in stores for Christmas, just don't bother. Yeah, okay. you're done. Yeah. It's, so and, and you watch big companies like Electronic Arts pull the plug on a couple of million dollars worth of development because they've missed their deadline. They can't yeah. do it now. Oh, yeah. And um, this one was close enough. We finished one of the last bugs and the vice president of development gets in a car, 
drives to the airport to courier this thing out to the processing plant when it went gold. So it could make the, wow. the window they had for uh, processing. But it was a fun project. Uh, we built a lot of things. It's very secret, isn't it, too, game programming. You you have to use the cone of silence when you talk to customers. Isn't that true? Oh, very much so. <laughs> um, and when we were talking about, you know, you, you think Microsoft worries about how you refer to their products? Yeah. Sit down with Disney for a while. It, <laughs> it, it's you want to talk brand. I mean, well, serious yeah. about brand. Very much so. You know, I mean, we would be getting bugs like, you know, the... The the next title we did was for Winnie the Pooh, you know, and and we would get titles going on this, you know, on this screen the red in Pooh's shirt isn't the right tone. Well, wow. okay, color branding, that's yeah, something. Everything there was a they, they were very very persnickety about that, but it's it's why that brand is what it is. Programmers can't even see red, can they? <laughs> <laughs> Managers I, certainly you know, I can. Have a daughter, my elder daughter is a serious artist. Uh, you know, art is her life, and she still has a a tube-based monitor because color matters so much to her. I showed her one of her pictures on an LCD monitor. She says that's just not good enough, and I I cannot see the difference. I don't know what it is she sees, but the color registration on LCD panels is not high enough quality for her. It has to be a tube. I think maybe it's just not as accurate. And in varies from monitor to monitor. That could I, be true too. I think that's why they have all those. You know, color adjustment software things that you see when you buy these monitors, and they come with the. C- I think it's just because they need to put something on the disc. You know, well, I, I honestly, I'm completely blind to it. I have no idea what they're seeing. Hey, um, Diane, you talked about genomics in your bio. Did you do some work in uh, in genetics or genomics? Yeah, I worked on a. I worked for a startup that was doing some sequence analysis software under X Windows in C Wow. It was a company here in Ann Arbor. It, that was a really cool job. And yeah. So I was really sad when the startup didn't make it. Um, that, but that, that was such an interesting really cool. time. Of course, the Human Genome Project totally exceeded all goals because the software got so good. Yeah, and the time that I was working in it was um, in, like, 92 till 96. And so right in the height of all that. And it was really an exciting place to be. I bet. Um, and yeah, I was, it, I was really disappointed when it didn't, you know, all work out to go on and be the be all end all. But, um, it, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun and I learned a lot. And, you know, I always tell people one of the really cool things about being a software developer is being able to get into the different application areas that you're working in. Um, you know, you can be interested in languages, but what's really fun is to have all of these different applications that you gain knowledge about you know, throughout your regular day. You must have some good stories from that period. <laughs> from the from the sequence analysis period? Yeah. Oh, geez, I don't know. Um, Francis Collins was here at the University of Michigan. He was a pretty big name at the time. Um, that was right around the time that the cystic fibrosis gene was found. And mm. um, we weren't working directly with him, but, you know, we were certainly in uh, the same circles as he was working in in terms of analysis, and um, we went out and met Craig Ventner at um, out in, uh, I think we were in Maryland at the time. I did a lot of traveling, talking to different people, you know, went out to the Bay Area and talked to some people out there who were working for a company that was considering buying us. You know, most of our conversations were, you know, I was the tech lead, and so we were talking to the companies about potentially buying us. And so, uh, so you'd have to do the dog and pony show thing. Yeah, I did a lot of dog and pony shows, and um, it was a it was a four person company, and so it was a uh, at, at the point we were doing dog and pony shows, there was a little bit of pressure. <laughs> Just a little, yeah. Well, the, you know, interesting thing about that part of software: vast amount of data. Um, so you got to sift through it all the time and lots of work in sort of the visualization of uh, how these things go together. Yeah. And the weird thing about, you know, sequence analysis is that um, uh, there's a lot of noise in there in, in the data that, you know, data that's completely um, insignificant and you have to be able to pilfer through the noise to find the stuff that's actually um, reasonable and, you know, so it was, it was pretty exciting. And my old boss used to have a, an analogy of 
of a blind typist, you know, everything could be shifted by by one character, and right. it still uh-huh. meant something. But you you know you have to be able to provide that transformation. Hmm. And so, you, got, you, you know, got that sort of keystone event. Oh, it's an offset by one, and suddenly all this data makes sense. Exactly, and so it was really really cool. And then, yeah, there was just a lot of little hidden things in there. And he did some analysis. You know, it was really fun sometimes to do an analysis over. You know, like there were things that were that were typed like a watermelon or something, you know, and he, he would, he would do this fun analysis during testing to see like how similar a watermelon and a human was. And you know, it was something incredible, like, you know, 90% genome similarity or something silly like that. And you're like, Oh, well, I guess we're not all that different from a watermelon. Yeah. I know a few that are higher than 90%. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do you guys possibly work together? I mean, with the .NET experience that you have, Bill, he's a regional director, and uh, and the experience with all these other technologies and platforms that you have, Diane, you when you go out to sit down with a client and you you know you're sitting there looking at Bill, are you thinking like, oh yeah, we'll do it in C sharp, and are you thinking, Diane, oh yeah, we'll do this in Python? <laughs> yeah, or in Java, or, or in, in Java, whatever. Or whatever. You know? Yeah, and I think that the customer benefits from that because then we go back and we hash it out and uh, and figure out what what's going to suit the client better. Rather than saying, well, we're a .NET shop, so we know what the answer is going to be ahead of time. Yeah, all software is better, best done in .NET. Right, or all software is best done in Java or whatever. You know, we don't have that preconceived notion. We go in there and say, okay, this client, you know, their their skill set matches this best. Um, the needs that they have match this best. And, you know, we and we really just hash it out between us. And the client gets to pretty much stay out of that argument. You know, they provide their input and they obviously make the decision, but we give them the best advice based on their specific circumstance. So you don't duke it out in front of the client? Yeah, we, we rarely do that. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> usually in the parking lot. But, yeah, it's, like Diane says, you know, any client that we go to, any customers they've got, they're they're probably already building software somehow now, right? So the question then is, should they stay on whatever road they're on or look at something different? So, you know, there's also inertia in their development staff. Retraining is an expensive, expensive thing. It is. Yeah. But then sometimes, you know, depending on where they're coming from, you know, it's well worth it, right? You know, there's companies we work with that might be still using... No, actually, one company I work with still has some people writing in Fortran. Hmm. Fortran will never die. No, it probably won't. And in some sense, they're doing the right thing because they're doing some very heavy math. So right. yeah. that's what Fortran's good for. Well, what we're trying to do is get them to write just the math in Fortran. Let us write all the I.O. and all the database calls and all the thread stuff you know, in a language that does that better. What's the most interesting project you guys have tackled together? Wow. Um Hmm. There's probably a couple really fun ones. Diane mentioned the one um, that she did. We had done some work for uh, Siemens Medical. Um, They make a lot of ultrasound machines. Mm -hmm. Right. And it is, you know, you think of your standard ultrasound, oh, wow, I've got a baby, right? You know, and they're looking at it, it's a baby. Cool. The things doctors can do with, with ultrasounds on organs and all kinds of stuff is amazing. Like on hearts, they can watch blood flow through hearts and stuff, and that's what one of the applications was that um, Bill and I both contributed to. And, and the really cool part is they're not just watching the blood flow, they're watching the muscle move, okay? Yeah. And some of the stuff that we did was calculating how fast different parts of the muscles were moving. Wow. Because doctors had figured out that, you know, let's say your whole left ventricle is, is contracting, right? Well, some of that might actually just be cells being pulled along because some of the other cells near them are working harder. Right, so damaged cell structures in a heart show up in the way that the muscle moves. Now, did you guys use imaging tools for this, or did you write it all yourself, or did you just use the stuff in the framework? What did you use? Well, everything comes out of um, the ultrasound machine in what's uh, a standard format called DICOM, which is something imaging something something for medicine, I think. Okay. And then you can look at each frame and then turn it into a bitmap and then just start analyzing bits. Well, okay. if you're talking about velocity measurements, you're talking about measuring motion of bits between frames. Right. That's that's pretty tricky math. It was a lot of fun. There was some very, very smart people doing a lot of different work there to make that happen. Let me just ask, did it involve pointers? 
yes. <laughs> <laughs> of course it did. Pointer, uh, the, pointers the, were harmed in the making of this software. Uh, right, right. And the really weird thing was during this whole uh, ultrasound application process, I was pregnant at the time, and so I went into my doctor's office, and of course I had to see which ultrasound machine they used and whether it was the one we had worked on or not. And right. it, it, it kind of provides a little personal aspect to the whole thing. Well, and I'm sure I'll, I'm betting that your doctor probably had a pretty simple machine compared to these, you know, real time imaging uh, uh, products. Yes, they did have a, a very simple, a very simple one compared to what you know we had been using, and it, it was it was really interesting to see that in their office, and you know, just wonder how much the one that they were using cost. And it was also really interesting when you're going through testing and you have this ultrasound gel in your hand and you're thinking, hmm, I could check on that baby right now. (laughs) (laughs) Here, take a picture of me. Take a picture of me. (laughs) Are both of you guys math nerds? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Diane? Well, um... I'm a woman in computer science. I think by definition, I have to be a. <laughs> you know, I had one of my one of my favorite teachers in college was a, a nun, and I went to this Catholic college for a while, even though I'm not Catholic. But uh, it was a great school, and uh, she said something I'll never forget. She said, "I would rather sit down with some cookies and tea and a book of problems than watch television." And I thought that was, wow, this person is a math nerd, you know? That's yeah, not, rather work the brain. But, you know, uh, math for fun, you know, was something that I hadn't really contemplated until I got to college. It's kind of... Uh, yeah, yeah, it's amazing the stuff that math does. And and I was just, you know, I was talking to my daughter because she was doing her math homework the other day. And I'm thinking, this is really weird, isn't it? Math is weird. It doesn't exist. It's so abstract. It's just, you know, can you imagine being the guy who first figured it out, you know, some Arab guy somewhere, you know. Okay, there's the way to make the uh, conversation grind to a halt. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, was one of those, I was one of those people that liked to actually do proofs, so... Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, uh, uh, I think that probably... Oh, yeah, that makes you a math geek. No two yeah, ways about it. probably. probably. If, you, if you know what a proof is, and you enjoy doing them... You're a math geek. <laughs> I just I just liked getting the answer because that proved I actually got there. You know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. One last question for both of you: What's the next language you want to learn, Diane? I think groovy. 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 Yeah, <laughs> groovy. Groovy is kind of a really. <laughs> You know, my husband's always amused by the fact that we have all these really weird names in, in software for things like, you know, Groovy and Python and, you know, I don't know. But uh, Groovy's a, uh, it's this really compact language. It, it's built for the Java platform. And, it you know, it really just, um, their sort of stated goal is to take the noise out of Java programming. There's, you know, anything that's really not necessary, they just pull out and, and you you find the stuff that's left is you know the bare essentials and um, hmm. cool. it's so really stripping cool down Java. I mean, I'm, and I noticed you're just reading some notes on it that it is literally an alternative to Java, as in still compiles to Java bytecode. Right, exactly. Yeah, but exactly. just stripping all the syn- excess syntax out. Yeah, and so what you're left with is just the stuff that you really meant to do, and that you you don't really need to state explicitly. And so, yeah, I haven't done anything with it, and I just. Uh, I think it'll be really cool. Well, and, and you know, no semicolons. I don't know if it's going to be fun for you. Oh man, that might kill me, right? <laughs> the, the combination of having to put in the uh, the curly braces but not putting in the semicolons. That's that's just mean. It might just be the. <laughs> it, it might it might be a bad place to go from Python. Yeah. Okay, Bill. How about you? You know, I'm uh, one of the languages I really want to spend more time with is F sharp. Okay, F sharp. Never heard of F-sharp. it. F sharp. It's uh, Don Syme. Um, who's out of uh, Microsoft's research lab in Cambridge, has put together, it's, it's a functional programming language for .NET. And there's two videos on Channel 9. If you just Google or search for, uh, yeah, we'll do that one again. The blue badges will kill me. So if you search for F-sharp uh, using whatever search engine you want, the MSDN videos come up. Uh, there's two different ones. And there's some very interesting DirectX stuff that he can do by just building models and then running them through functions, and you get all this cool stuff to happen. So it's very right. compact and very expressive. This is a, I mean, functional programming is a whole other topic, really. 
it's a, it's another way of a, of approaching a problem. It, and there's some very interesting advantages to it, I think, as we move into the future. Um, you know, you, you've probably started to read a lot of where people are talking about, you know, Moore's law is, is changing in that in order to get that same kind of, you know, increase in performance every year, now we're not just speeding up the chips, we're now adding more cores. Yeah, yeah. well, because we can't speed up the chips anymore. Right. right. We're so, running we're running up against walls on some of that stuff and so we're finding other ways to solve the problem. Right. But yeah, you know, and we're running up against this interesting issue that I don't care how many cycles per second I'm doing anymore. I need to do more things at once. Yep. Right. And functional programming does make multi-threaded programming easier. Now, I didn't say easy. Yeah, because nothing's going to make it easy. Right. So, yep. you know, by definition if a function has inputs and outputs and nothing else. So you get rid of these state problems and, you know, some of the shared memory. So it's going to be easier using functional constructs to write programs and applications that take care of multiple cores. Still not easy, I don't think. Hey, really, I mean, every program has an input and an output. Functional programming to me seems to be talking about naturally distilling those chunks down smaller. Because the less time you spend in a given block, the less risk of... Uh, conflict or collision you have. Right. And functional programming, you don't have state so much, right? Because you don't have member variables, you don't have global variables, you've got functions and expressions. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm simplifying a little bit. And, and the other part of that that I think is going to be very interesting that I want to see as it comes out more, um, have you heard of Plink or P-Link? No, I have heard of P-Link, but I don't really know what it is. It is. So I, guess I don't know much count. yet, because I only heard it mentioned in one interview with uh, Anders Helsberg, and it is Link designed to be parallel. So oh. automatic, multi-threading Link stuff. Asynchronous Link. Yeah. Like, well, wow, parallel Link. Really well, gonna be cool. well, you have, but you have asynchronous uh, tools in the, in the language, uh, maybe it's that's all that we have is just the pairing of those things, making it simpler. Right, maybe that's but, all it is. I'm it speculating. Like, don't quote me on this. I'm right. just first you know, thing it, that came to mind. What it looks like is the compiler is going to make it parallel for you. Wow, nice, that's cool, yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, if Anders has grabbed onto it, he's got access to a lot of resources. He can make a lot of things happen. That's true. And he's a pretty sharp guy. So if he's trying to come up with a solution to this problem, I got a hunch he's going to find something. Yeah, it's going to happen. Well, an interesting point. Link getting away from the query language per se, just getting into that sort of everything is a set and can be manip- manipulated, hmm. just naturally leads us into this. So if I can go parallel, I will. Right. Right. And I think there's some really cool things that are going to happen because of that. Okay, so, um, and last thing I want to mention is there was a book signing. Uh, you signed somebody's book and, and <laughs> something Wait. about my name. Uh, what was it? Oh, we have to tell that story. What is this all about anyway? Well, you know, one of the local user group leaders, Jason Follis. Who, uh, ah, yes, Jason Follis. Leads the Toledo group, was absolutely thrilled that he got to go to the Visual Studio 2005 launch and, and, and meet you and, and Richard and and party and, and we lost his recording. Remember that, Richard? Oh, yes, of course. We're, I remember trying <laughs> to find a quiet place to record. I think we ended up behind some curtains in a room. And something happened. I, I don't know. We, we were recording him, and then we looked, and we couldn't find the file. So either we didn't, you know, had it on pause or something or whatever. But uh, it was too it was too bad, too. But we've uh, – Jason's a great guy. He's a huge fan of the show, too. Yeah. So then he comes to our local launch event in Detroit. And I'm, you know, helping out at the Ask the Experts booth for the the framework and things like that. And I was also splitting time with the user group booth. And Jason won a copy of uh, my book, Effective C Sharp. And he comes over and asks me to sign it. So I said, all right, sure, I'll be glad to sign it. And he's with a friend of his. And I just said, well, do you want anything interesting on there? And his friend says, yeah, right, with love, to Jason. <laughs> and then Jason says, well, you know, if you were somebody real famous like Carl Franklin, then maybe that'd be great. <laughs> so it'd been a long day. So I wrote it on the cover page of the book with Carl Franklin's love to Jason. <laughs> and uh, so then he put that on his blog. So nice. About a month and a half later, I went to speak at his user group in Toledo. So I gave him another copy with a, a more normal signature that he can actually show friends. 
<laughs> awesome. uh, yeah, Jason is a good guy, and he does a lot of work in the area to, he to does. bring things you gotta, together. Got to watch this guy. He's an up-and-comer in the community. He is. Uh, you guys are giving away some tickets to Code Mash. Yeah. Right? I think so. Well, you are, too. Well, okay. I think, yeah, I think we're now giving them away. You gave them to us. We'll give them to whoever emails us first at .net rocks at franklins.net. That's D-O-T-N-E-T-R-O-C-K-S at franklins.net. And tell us you want tickets to the Code Mash uh, one more time. Tell us where and when. Um, www.codemash.org. Um, it's in Sandusky, Ohio, January 18th to 19th. And uh, the early bird rate of $99 expires at the end of the month. And after that, it'll be 149 which is still amazingly reasonable. And, and I think that uh, we'll send you a link so that you can, um, so that everybody can see who's going to be at the, the conference speaking and stuff. All right. Well, if you're the first to send us an email saying, I want tickets, you got them. Uh, two tickets if you're the first two people. Bill Wagner and Diane Marsh, thank you very much for being our guests this, uh, this week on Donnay Rocks. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much, Carl. All right. We'll see you next week on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash dotnetrocks. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl never sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Time for-